The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Luke chapter 20. Quick review to kind of orient us where we're at in the story here. Uh, In the previous chapter, you have the, the, the triumphal entry of Jesus into his final week of life before the crucifixion. And... Uh, he enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. People are crying, Hosanna, and, and things look, you know, like there's this sort of embrace. But when he goes into the temple, the temple is, has become a marketplace. Jesus, our peace-loving, hippie Jesus, the first original pacifist Jesus, decides, you know, I'm getting kind of tired of this coming in here, seeing the business that's here. And so he gets creative. He begins with some materials around him, and he starts braiding together something. Now I can imagine Peter or some of the other disciples just trying to, like, what's, what's he doing? He's just like, is it craft day in the temple? What's happening? Jesus, the one that we think of most often as the lamb, is braiding a whip. He's making a whip. And the lamb demonstrates that he is not just the lamb, but he is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the one who bears authority. And he comes into his father's house, and he begins to whip people. Now, we want to think in our minds, I think maybe that he just like is cracking it in the air and intimidating people. But the Bible says clearly that he drove them from the temple, that he grabbed tables and in a fit of rage threw the tables and the coins spilled all over the floor, that he kicked the gates open and set the sheep and the oxen free. Now, it wasn't totally uncontrolled. He saw that the doves were in cages right? He protected the doves, but man, Jesus is not happy because, you see, his father's house was to be a place where people could come and meet with God, where they would come and spend time in his presence. It was to be a house of prayer. It was the meeting place between God and his people. It's where heaven overlapped with earth. And because of the blood of the sacrifices, the people who could not enter God's presence had atonement and were able to draw near to their God. It was the place of prayer. But they had turned it into a den of thieves, and Jesus is not happy about it. He's not having it at all. This is the moment, guys, that essentially gets Jesus killed. You see, Ananias and Caiaphas were of the same family, and and they had turned the temple into this marketplace and this money exchange place, and they were profiting very, very well. This was essentially the first Jewish mafia running the temple. They were getting extremely wealthy. And so when Jesus comes in and he topples their tables and exposes the hypocrisy of what is happening. 
He puts himself in direct conflict with the most powerful people in the city. That's the moment. Saying, Jesus, you can mess with a lot of things, but you don't mess with my money. That's the moment. And they come after Jesus. They are looking for ways to discredit him. They are looking for ways to trap him. They're looking for ways to accuse him. Which is the overall theme of this chapter. As a matter of fact, this chapter often gets titled The Day of Controversy. The Day of Controversy. That's kind of the theme. Or more importantly, The Inspection of the Lamb. That's the theme for this. The Inspection of the Lamb. And, and why is that important? Well, it's important because of this. Leading up to Passover, the Israelites were commanded by God to take a lamb into their household and to inspect it. They would bring it into their household. They would live with it, make sure it didn't have any flaws. The kids would pet it. Everybody knew why the lamb was there. And you wanted to make sure that this lamb didn't have any blemishes, any spots, any disabilities, any flaws whatsoever, so that it could be offered on the day of Passover. And essentially what's happening here in this chapter is they are looking for flaws in the Lamb of God. They're inspecting him. They're looking for those flaws. Now there are three important points of the six stories that happen in uh, the rest of this chapter. And if you get these three things, you'll kind of basically understand how each of these six stories will, will work themselves out. First of all, Jesus' moral perfections are being authenticated. Jesus' moral perfections are authenticated. That is, through the testing process, they're going to see he doesn't have any flaw. There is nothing wrong with him. They can't find anything to accuse him of, and his wisdom is beyond compare. The second thing that's going to happen is that Jesus answers the questions of where he gets his authority in the first place. Again and again, he's going to be reaffirming that they already know where his authority comes from. And then thirdly, the hypocrisy of the religious leaders will be exposed. All of a sudden, their hearts are going to become very, very plain. And that's what happens when we understand the law the scriptures, the teaching of God, it exposes our hearts. It, it gives us this mirror that reflects back where we don't match up to what God has called us to. So, there's a basic outline that we're going to follow. Verses 1 through 8, if these are kind of our file folders. And so I want you to think of these as thought file folders. And In verses 1 through 8, in the origin of authority, we're going to talk about that, uh, that principle of where Jesus' authority comes from and tuck those thoughts into that file folder. Verses 9 through 18, the resistance to his authority. 19 through 26, the point of his authority. So if you're taking notes... Our passage today will break down into those three points, and we'll talk about those categories now. So, beginning in verse 1, chapter 20, the Gospel of Luke, let's read. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching 
the gospel. That's important. Think about that. Hold that for a moment. The chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up, and they said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. Okay, first important piece. Jesus is preaching the gospel. Now, if I was to ask kind of the average American or the, the, the American evangelical, the person who grew up in church, and I say, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? I, I think we would kind of get uh, what would be more a Billy Graham type of an answer from most people, which is this idea that the gospel is the message that Jesus died on the cross, that he was buried, he was raised again the third day, and that if you believe in him, you can have a new life. And, 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 and while that is a slice, a segment of the gospel, that in fact is not the gospel message itself. Now, why do I say that? Well, because Jesus is preaching the gospel here, and he hasn't yet died and been resurrected. Okay? And, and, and this is why this is important. Because the gospel does not just include forgiveness of sin. It includes everything that God has promised in light of what Jesus has done. The gospel is this message that God is undoing the brokenness of the world, that he is redeeming what sin has messed up, that death itself is beginning to work backwards. <laughs> There's this moment in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's one of my favorites. You remember that uh, Aslan, if you've read the books or you're familiar with the story, Aslan is this Christ figure in the books. And Aslan is... is uh, he has offered his life in the place of Edmund. Edmund has done something terrible. He's betrayed his friends, and as a result, he deserves to die according to the magic of Narnia, right? And so he is supposed to die, but Aslan offers himself in the place of Edmund. And there, the, the white witch, she comes and... and uh, she, she kills, she shaves Aslan down, ties him to this stone table, drops the knife into him and kills him. Unbeknownst to her and her minions who scurry off into the night, Lucy and Susan are hiding in the thicket and they've, they've seen everything that's happened and their hearts are broken. When the coast is clear, they sneak out and they go to the table. When they get to the table, Aslan is on this table and these little mice come and begin to chew away the ropes and the ropes that bound him begin to fall off and they don't understand what's happening but they recognize he's dead and they begin to, to mourn and after being there for a while, they, they begin to make their way back towards their camp and as they do so, they hear this thunderous crack behind them. And they turn around, and the table is broken. They rush back to see Aslan, this Christ-like figure, and he is not there. And they're like, where did they take him? Oh, you know, they begin to weep and howl, thinking the witch took him away. And all of a sudden, Aslan reappears. His mane is full, and he is at his peak of glory. And he begins to talk to Susan and Lucy, and he says, you know, I, I know what the white witch thought. She only knew of the magic that, that happens or the magic that was since the dawn of time. But if she could look back further 
to the time before dawn, or time dawned, she would have known a deeper magic. That when one who is innocent offers himself in the place of the guilty, that the table of law would be broken and that death itself would begin to work backwards. I love that moment. See, this is, this is what the gospel is. The gospel is what, what happened to Jesus is going to start happening everywhere. What, what killed him and brought him to the point of death purchased for us life eternal and bodies are going to start coming up everywhere. Not just from a tomb 2,000 years ago, but for eternity resurrected into new life and a new city, and death itself has begun the process of working backwards. And that is the gospel that Jesus is preaching. He's talking about this coming kingdom. He's talking about the rule of God. He's talking about all that God has promised coming to pass and it beginning with him. Now, as he teaches, the question comes up, well, where did you get the authority to do these things? Who gave you this authority? You just kicked everybody out of the temple, and you're you know, claiming all these things about the, the, the kingdom, and where did you get this authority? Now, it's a reasonable question, isn't it? I mean, if you think about it, even up here, this pulpit right here, like anybody could come up here and say anything, and it might be true, and it might be crazy. What gives them authority? Or do they have any authority at, at all? It's a, it's, it's a valid question. And although the, the question is valid, the heart is wicked. The evidence of that happens as we begin to see the rest of this chapter unfold. And so he answered them. He said, okay, well, I will, I will answer your question when you answer my question. I will ask you a question. Now you tell me. Was the baptism of John, that's John the Baptist, from heaven or was it from man? Now, they discussed it with one another, saying if if we say from heaven, then he will say, well, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So the question of authority comes up. And, and here's what they're really asking, like, who do you represent? Who is giving you the right to do what you are doing, to say what you were saying? Who, who gave you that right? Was it, was, is it Roman? Did, did, did the Romans give you some sort of permission to come into the temple, say what you want to say, do what you're doing? Is that where you got it from? Did you, is, it, is it rabbinical? Where'd you go to school? What's your degree? Who taught you? By what authority are you proclaiming these things to be true? Is it prophetic? Are you coming to us like an, like an Old Testament prophet? Who called you? Who made you that? Who gave you that title? 
Or maybe you're coming to us on behalf of tradition and you're appealing to the authority of tradition to, to, to bind us to the things that you say. But ultimately what they really want is to take his answer and use it to discredit him and to make his words meaningless. But Jesus, he, it's like these guys are playing chess. You know what I mean? And they're like, okay, my queen has moved here. My rook is over here. And I got a couple pawns over here. And I think I've got him. I'm going to checkmate him. And then Jesus just flips the whole thing around and checkmates them. Now, here's the deal, guys. Uh, I have played chess a few times in my life. Especially when the kids were little. Now that they're older, I don't play chess with them. But when they were little, I loved playing chess with them. Why? Because it gave me an opportunity to flex my intellectual prowess. Because you look like you're amazing to an eight-year-old. Okay, I'm lying. He was like six. Okay? You feel smart with somebody who doesn't know the game as well as you do. Okay? But, but put me in a chess match with Bobby Fischer, the world champion chess player. And all of a sudden, I'm the six-year-old. I'm the idiot. And, and these guys here, they're trying to trap Jesus, but guys, they're the fools. They are trying to corner the maker of the universe. Hebrews 1 tells us he's the one. Through him, all things came into existence. That's, that's amazing. You see, they're trying to play mental chess with them, but Jesus just checkmates them. And, and so they, they start to work it out. Like, okay, well... Um, where did he get this authority? Jesus asks the question, well, what about John's baptism? Was it, where did that authority come from? And they go, okay, well, he's playing our game. Right? Trying to anticipate his answers. And they go, oh, okay, so if we say that John's authority was from heaven, which is the popular opinion, uh, then he'll say, why didn't you believe him? <laughs> because John said Jesus was the Messiah that he had been talking about. John said Jesus is the one who, who he wasn't even worthy to unlatch his sandals. John said Jesus was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. He was the one that they were supposed to prepare the roads for. They go, okay, so we can't say that it's from heaven because then we have to acknowledge his authority. <laughs> okay? But if we say that John was not a prophet, then... The people will surely stone us because everybody knows he was a prophet. Remember that up to this time, for 400 years, the prophetic voice in Israel had not been heard since Malachi. For 400 years in the intertestamental period, there was no prophet that had been raised up from God to speak with the authority of God, with the authority of a prophet. 
until John the Baptist comes on the scene. And when he comes on the scene, it is big news in Israel. A prophet. He looks like Elijah. He's got like a nice camel skin leather outfit. He's got weird habits like a prophet. Like he, he uh, wanders out into the middle of the desert where there, there's nobody at and just starts yelling at people. Like, you, repent! You know, and then people are like, okay. He's like, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, you brood of vipers? You know, he's like yelling at people like, do I come? Do I not come? I don't know. You know, and, 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 and then he's got a weird diet. Like, he eats weird stuff. He eats, like, locusts. He's got a sweet tooth. He's after wild honey. He's just this odd character. They're like, that guy's definitely a prophet. So for them to deny that he's a prophet puts them at odds with popular opinion. Now, now here's the dilemma, guys. The thing they fear the most is public opinion. They want to dismiss Jesus' authority and save face. They want both of those things. But Jesus won't let them do that. So when they say to him, uh, we don't know where John's authority came from, Jesus says to them, well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So here's the deal. Jesus doesn't give them an answer. And you think, well, why? Doesn't he want them to know? Knowledge isn't the issue. They already know, don't they? <laughs> they? They reasoned it out themselves. They go, well, if we say it's from heaven, which everybody thinks it is, then it's from heaven and Jesus is who he says he is. They already know. They already know where his authority comes from. And so he's not going to tell them because they already know the answer. I think of that moment in the Garden of Eden where Adam is there hiding. And he hears the voice of the Lord come walking in the cool of the day. Adam, where are you? God knew what was in his heart. But he wanted Adam to confess it to bring it out into the light. I was hiding because I was naked and I was ashamed. He was trying to draw that out of Adam so that Adam could confess. And Jesus, I think, is doing the same thing. If you're not going to answer the question, if you won't let me draw you out of this, if you won't let me pull you into the truth, I'm not going to give you an answer. I'm just going to let this question hang. You wrestle with it. You deal with it in your heart. I'm just... It's not my job to convince you because you already know. Many times, guys, the issue with the people around us when we want to care for people around us is not so much that they are wrestling with whether or not they know God's will. They are wrestling with whether or not they want it. Now, on the one hand, there's crazy scenarios that you go, well, 
it's obvious what God's will is. Like, God, do you want me to work hard and be responsible with my money, or do you want me to rob a bank? Right? Like, that's, that's an easy one. We go, oh, okay, I know what God's will is in this circumstance, right? Let me tell you where it gets harder. When all of a sudden you're three, seven, ten, twenty, thirty years into a marriage, and it's really difficult. And you go, oh, did it? Did I make a mistake? You start to question. Did I, did I do something wrong? Is there something that, you know, am I in God's will or am I out of God's will in some capacity or some way? And you start wrestling. And the problem is, guys, most of the time, we already know what the answer is. We already know it. What we're wrestling with is the answer we already know. We don't like it. Our flesh is set against it. We just push against it. We just, we're wrestling with surrender in those moments. And that's not to say that every circumstance is the same. There are circumstances that are beyond our control, but what we do have control of is our surrender to our own heart, of our own heart to God. That's what we have control of. So these guys, in their heart, they're looking for a way out. They're looking for an escape route, right, to get out of the question that Jesus is presenting them. And then Jesus launches into this, this parable, this story. And so we come to the, the second sort of file folder here, which in verses 9 through 18, their resistance to his authority, the resistance to his authority. So Jesus unloads this parable on them. He says this, and he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, and he let it out to tenants, and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they could give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And so he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And then he sent a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall we do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, They said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance might be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. So what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them. And he said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. 
You see, Jesus gives this story right after the question of his authority. Like, where did you get your authority? And he goes, you already know, it came from God, right? And then in this second little piece here, this story he tells in response to that, he's demonstrating not only they, but their entire history, the history of Israel, has been one of rejecting the authority of God. This parable recounts the 1,300 years of Israel's history and also includes a prophecy about how that's going to end for them in the long run. You see, the owner of the land who prepared the vineyard and lent it out to tenants is God. The tenants are the religious leaders. The fruit that God desired, that the owner desired, is the fruit among Israel as they honored God with their lives and cared for the people around them and become this this nation that is this royal priesthood representing God to the rest of the world. That was the calling that God had placed upon Israel. And God wanted that fruit from them. He desired to get that fruit from them, but it wasn't happening, and so he sent prophets. The servants are the prophets in the parable. They came, and they proclaimed, God wants fruit. He wants the fruit from you. The owner wants this fruit from you. But they shamefully treated each of the prophets and rejected them wouldn't listen to and rebelled against the authority of God as the owner of the vine of Israel. And so, the father, the owner, God, says, well, then I'll send my son. Surely they will respect him. But the response of the tenants was the same as the response of these religious leaders presently, right now, in this moment. That is, they said, here is the heir. Let us kill him, and then all of it will be ours. There will be nobody to leave it to. It's ours then. What will the owner do? He'll come and destroy those tenants. And that's exactly what he did. In 70 AD, Titus came in and burned. He sacked Jerusalem, burned it, not one stone remaining upon another. To this day, you can see the damage that was done from that battle if you go to Israel. So this judgment then is against them. And he says, that, and I'm going to give the vineyard, I'm going to give the fruit to others. Who are the others? It's the Gentile church. It's those that would come in through the gospel and be grafted in to the tree of God. It's a powerful story. It's a, an important one. But ultimately, what Jesus is demonstrating is that their entire history has been one of rebellion, rejection of the authority of God in their lives. And that that will ultimately be their undoing. Matter of fact, he references that when he quotes from Psalm 118 and says, what is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You see, when they were building a big building or, 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 or say, something the size of the temple, 
The cornerstone was the important piece. It was the tie-in for two important, large, uh, weight-bearing walls. And so that stone that was the tie-in that would kind of hold the corner of the building together was super important. So they would inspect the stone to make sure it didn't have any natural fissures or cracks or any flaws of any sort because if you built all the weight of a giant stone building upon a, a, a stone that has a crack in it, a fissure in it, that weight can cause it to bust apart and then the whole building collapses and crumbles and falls apart. So they would tediously inspect the stones. They would go through and go, no, not this one, not that one, not that one, and make their way along, right? And he's saying, essentially, you know, I'm the stone that you overlooked, the one you passed by, the one that is without flaw, the perfect cornerstone. You, 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 you're rejecting me. You're passing me by. Now, interestingly enough, that psalm was also written about King David, historically. And what it said was essentially that David was the one, remember, he was anointed as king as a, as a, as a, a child, a little shepherd boy. But it took a lot of years before he would actually become the king of Israel and, become, and, and be crowned. And during that time, he was rejected by, uh, by Israel as the authority. Uh, and, and as a result, he was the stone that was overlooked. And then he eventually became really the foundational monarch for the nation of Israel, for building the empire of Israel. His military conquests and his wisdom as a leader is what made Israel the great nation that it was leading into uh, the reign of Solomon when it be, when it existed at its height and uh, most prosperity. And so the psalmist is writing about David and and saying that he's the one that everybody rejected, but look at what he's become now, right? Jesus takes that same principle, he brings it forward to himself, and he says, hey, I'm the one you're rejecting, but I'm going to be the foundation stone for everything that happens. From here on out, everything is built upon me. I'm the tie-in. Even though I'm the one that you pass by, it's me that's holding this whole thing together. Not only that, but a sort of third wave of, of, of you know, just understanding this reference, you, you, you cannot help but factor in what happened in Daniel chapter 2. You remember Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He has this dream of this statue that has a head of gold and then arms of silver and then bronze and then iron and then iron mixed with clay in the feet. And there's this statue. And then this giant stone comes from like outer space and dashes this statue apart. He's really troubled by this dream. He's like, what is this all about? And, and, and so Daniel comes and interprets that dream to him. And he says, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, these are successive kingdoms. Yours is this head of gold. After you will come the Medes and the Persians. After them will come the Greeks. After them will come the Romans. So there's like this succession of kingdoms. And God wants you to know what he has planned, what is coming, what he has prepared. And the stone... It's the coming kingdom that will destroy all of the previous kingdoms. It will supplant and replace every kingdom that has ever been. It is the the stone from God by which all the kingdoms of the earth will be judged. 
So he's clearly referencing this prophetic passage as well. And Jesus is ultimately saying, hey, listen, resistance is futile. There is an authority that is a super authority that will supersede every authority. And it is this gospel that I've been telling you about. It is the kingdom of God. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. And he will be the righteous judge over every king, over every potentate, over every person who was given authority by God. I was talking with um, a family member over Christmas. We're sitting around over a fire, looking up at the stars. It was late in the night, maybe one or two o'clock in the morning. And we're chatting, and I didn't expect the conversation to go this way because uh, this family member is, although spiritually inclined, not really open to conversation. Uh, but uh, I, you know, when you're staring at the vastness of the universe, things get deep, right? And your barriers kind of go down after about one o'clock in the morning. So, you know, we're meandering in conversation. And he, uh, he says to me, man, you know, I look at the universe and how like, big it is and all the things that God has made. And I, and I think of it like, what is like this planet, right? This planet is like, the, it's like a tiny planet even in our, our solar system. And then our solar system is like a tiny solar system inside of our galaxy. And our galaxy is like a tiny galaxy in comparison to the millions of galaxies that we can see across the expanse of space. And then what are we on the surface of this planet? We're like, the, he said, he, this is what he said. He said, we are like fungus on a speck of dust. And he's right. I mean, you think about it in that term, in those terms. We're like fungus on a speck of dust. And then he's like, and then we just spend all our time arguing over, over what God must be like. And one person says, you know, it's my book and it's my God. And the other person says, oh, it's my book and it's, it's my God. And he's like, how are we to know? Like, how, how can we know that? And he, and, he, and he made this claim that I thought was so profound. He said, man, if you, if you, Think about how big everything that has been made is. And you realize that came from God. Then surely he's bigger. Right? And we're just a fungus on a speck of dust. And, 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 and we think that somehow we can understand or comprehend him. All of us have to be wrong. All of us have to be incomplete in our understanding. How can we know him? How can we possibly know him? And I said, well, it's a good thing that you asked that question. I think that's a really good question. I think great thinkers throughout history have asked that same question. To what degree can we know God? If he is infinite, he stands outside of time and space and everything that has been made out of, outside of material matter. He has no beginning. He's eternal. And, and this was all his idea. Everything that happened is, is his working. The gap between us as finite beings and him as an infinite being is way too far. And the finite beings cannot comprehend the infinite. But the question that you're asking is, can we know him? And here's what I would say is the big difference. All man-made religion 
is man trying to know the eternal, know the infinite, know God. The gospel is God saying, you'll never make it. Let me show you who I am. See, that's the thing, is the finite can never make that leap. My pastor, when I first got saved, used to tell a story. He said, you know, imagine that you're down at the pier in Brookings and you decide you want to have a long jump contest off the end of the pier with some Olympian, right? And you run and you say, okay, here's the goal. The goal is we're going to jump to Hawaii, all right? And you run to the end of the pier and just with everything you got, you, you launch off of there and you go to everybody's amazement. You, you go like 35 yards out into the ocean. It was a powerful jump. Your thighs are just like pulsating. Ah! You're like, yes! And then the Olympian comes behind you, right? And just because he's like Speedy Gonzalez, he just launches off and you can see him bicycling in the air and he goes two miles out into the ocean. You go, holy cow, I didn't even know that was possible. Here's the big question. Which one of you hit Hawaii? That's the goal. The answer is no one. No one did. The gap is too big. It's not humanly possible. So God comes down. He meets us. The question is, will we resist his authority? What will we do with that? Friends, if I could just encourage you in something, this is why the preaching of the gospel is a commandment. It is an imperative now, when I say that, I recognize that there are some here that are like, okay, let me reach back to the 90s to my, you know, four spiritual laws or that little class on evangelism where I say, you know, hey, have you ever told a lie? And, and the person says, well, yeah, I told a lie. Then what's that make you, a liar? Or the car salesman approach, they're like, hi, I don't know you. I've never known you, don't care about you. But what I, would you like to hear about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Now, I'm poking fun a little, but, but honestly, that, those have been kind of the models of evangelism that have been out there, and um, they, to God's credit and God's glory, they work sometimes. But I'll tell you the most powerful tool of evangelism is. Right now, right now, here in this room, every single one of you, every single one of you have people in your life that do not know Jesus, people that you genuinely love, people that you genuinely care for, who do not know Jesus. And listen, the stone is coming. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. How will they know Him? How will they know Him? Listen, you are likely one of the only voices proclaiming to them the gospel. God's given you that opportunity. 
most powerful model of evangelism is to examine the people around you and go, who can I talk to? God, highlight them. Put it on my heart. Show me, Lord. Show me the people in my life. Make a list of like 10 people and go, that person hasn't heard from me about Jesus and that coworker and that family member and that friend has never heard me talk about Jesus. And they are headed to hell apart from this wisdom and knowledge. I'm going to talk to them about it. And I may not be great at it, but I'm going to do something because I can't just sit here and let this happen. I've got to do it. So they resist his authority, the resistance to his authority in verses 9 through 18. Verses 19 through 26, the point of his authority. Listen. The kingdom is the restoration of God's rule. That's really the ultimate point of his authority. God is establishing the eternal rule and reign of his authority through what Jesus accomplished, okay? But this is illustrated in this last passage here in verses 19 through 26. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. There it is again. The fear of man is a snare, right? So they watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something that he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governors. They're trying to trap him. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. They're, they're buttering him up, a little bit of flattery, right, before they poison him. But... He perceived their craftiness. Oh, excuse me, uh, verse 22. Uh, Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Here's the deal. Rome did a lot of awful things with the use of its authority. I mean, the question for these early first century Jews was a very real question for multiple reasons. There was uh, actually a lot of reasons why this was such a big issue. Now, it doesn't seem like a big issue to us in the modern metropolis of Medford, Oregon. But... In the previous place where I lived, in, in the wild west of Cave Junction, the question of whether or not to pay taxes was kind of a hot topic. And a lot of people living in the woodwork out there who are tax protesters and don't think that they you know, owe the government anything. But essentially what Jesus is saying is that there are spheres of authority, okay? That the government has been giving a sphere of authority. He's acknowledging that by saying, hey, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. This is under his rule, under his realm. He's responsible for how he uses it. Now, I love this point right here because it's so encouraging to me for a number of reasons. One one of them is, is what I saw happen this last week. This last week, there was this uh, a celebration, the beginning of the week started with a celebration of Martin Luther King Jr.'s day. 
and um, we celebrated equality, right? By the end of the week, we're getting news reports from New York that though we do regard equality for people based upon the, the color of their skin, we still discriminate against people based upon their size, if they're still in the womb, their environment, their degree of development or level of dependency. We, we say, you know, then, you know, not everybody has a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Not everybody has that right. Now, oh, let, let, let me say this, because I think Christians also kind of go off the rails, right? And, and sometimes they like, get psychotically hostile in the online world of the Facebook, right? Uh, and, and on the one hand, you know, like I, I understand because it's a very passionate issue. There are circumstances, medical circumstances, and, and things where the wife of, or the life of the, of the mother and the life of the baby are at a, a tipping point with one another. And those decisions are incredibly, incredibly complex. We can't oversimplify that, okay? But the vast majority of abortions that take place are not that scenario. It is mostly a question of convenience. It is mostly a question of cost, like what will it cost me to have a baby? And then people are, the vast majority of the abortions that happen are people making decisions that I choose my life and my desires, my education, my financial goals, my whatever, right? I don't want to suffer at the very least over the life of the human that is living inside of them. And our government affirmed that. You know, this, this coin here bore an inscription. It was uh, inscribed, the divine Augustus, proclaiming Caesar as God. It was the money that was used to pay for all that Rome did, from the crucifixions to the entertainment culture of Rome, where they would sew people up into pig skins and have them torn apart by wild beasts, where they would dip people in wax and light them on fire, where the gladiators would do their thing, and horrible sinful things would be happening at the stands while people eat, ate and drank and partied as blood was being shed. And that, this, these coins, were being used to pay for that. And it, it bore the inscription, the imprint of somebody who was calling himself God. So for the first century Jew, they were saying, there's no way we can use this money. There's no way we can pay taxes. It's idolatry to do so. And even if we could get past the idolatry inscription, we said it's not really idolatry. We're, you know, uh, what is being done with it is so sinful and wrong. Isn't that the dilemma we have when we see what's happening in our country? We see the way that people are oppressed. And our, our money doesn't say Caesar, the august one, the divine uh, godhead of, of the Roman Empire. No, our money says in God we trust. And then we use it to pay for the slaughter of unborn children claiming that we trust in God. Do you see the hypocrisy there? Now, I'm not discounting those, those 
circumstances that are more complex, but the vast majority of the types of abortions that happen are not those. It's people wanting convenience. And my heart hurts for the circumstances that sometimes bring about those very real struggles. I'm not dismissing those struggles. Poverty is a very big deal. The types of things that can bring about pregnancy, like rape, are a very big deal. The question is, does that mean we should take the life of another to make that right? Such a heartbreaking issue. And then you you look around our government, you see the ways, you go, oh man, there's so many other ways (laughs) that they're doing wrong things with our resources. But here's the deal. God's authority supersedes them all and how they use that authority will ultimately bring about judgment for them. They will be judged for how that authority is used. And that is a fearful thing. Listen, as we wrap up, a couple of final points that I want you to walk away with. There are spheres of authority. Listen, some of them are in the government. There's one layer of authority. What happens here in the church is another sphere of authority. And, and, and I, your elders, your pastoral team here, will be giving an account before God for what takes place here, for what goes down in this household right here. Which is why Jesus says, or why the, the epistles say, excuse me, let not many of you become teachers because such will incur stricter judgment. That's a heavy thing, right? Did you know there's also another sphere of authority and that's within the home? Husbands, fathers, you have a measure of authority. Mothers, you have a measure of authority. And you'll be held to account for how that authority is used. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? Eve sins first, right? Who gets held responsible? Adam. It went down under his watch. He was supposed to protect, right? He's held accountable. Husbands, fathers, you're accountable for what goes down in your home. But ultimately, as we, we kind of track this back, listen, all of us at some level are little Caesars ruling our own little kingdom, right? We, we're all sort of trying to hang on to what is ours, trying to dismiss at some level the authority of Jesus over our lives. And Jesus' response here is, whose image do you bear? Whose authority are you under? And who do you belong to? Notice how he illustrates this. He says this, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar. And he said, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. You bear his image. You are under his authority. You belong to him. Your entire life does. Your time, your resources, your money, all of it. It all belongs to God. Now the question is, will you live accordingly? Because the coming kingdom is supremely, finally, fully under his authority. That's the good news. Are you adjusting now? That's the question. The gospel is not just the proclamation of what God has done. It is also the proclamation of what God will do. When all authorities are brought under his foot. Jesus, the perfect lamb, has been inspected in order that he might become the perfect sacrifice 
and the perfect Savior. That he might stand in our place. And if you have not surrendered to his authority, do it now. Don't wait till later. Amen? Father, take your word and break it open in our hearts. Bless the scriptures in us. Cause it to form how we see and think and how we live in this world. That we might live for your glory and honor and that we might live to your delight. Use us to proclaim the gospel. Use us, Lord. Use our voice in this society to remind the world around us that there is a final authority. That the House and the Senate and even the President himself will give an account to. May we live in partnership with that authority and not in rebellion against it. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful day. Jesus,